This is Dr. Rodney Benner, and this is the Shelbourne Knee Center Podcast. Welcome to episode 10, and tonight we are going to be talking about a topic that uh, I personally feel pretty uh, feel pretty passionate about and have a lot of interest in. We're going to talk about failed total knees, which why would a joint replacement surgeon be interested in failed knee replacements? Uh, but uh, it's a, it's something that I see in the office quite a bit. We get people from around Indianapolis, really around the state of Indiana, who come in to see us at our office with knee replacements that they've had done elsewhere that just aren't doing well and just haven't met their expectations or have specific complications, et cetera, that they want an evaluation for. And this is something that I feel like we've... Uh, uh, been able to develop a little bit of a uh, of a, some infrastructure around in our office to be able to handle this like we try to handle everything in kind of a multi multidisciplinary way with our physical therapy staff following it from a research perspective uh, along with our physician and PA provider in the clinic uh, I think we have a good a good system around this and it's something that uh, I don't think that everybody coming out of uh, fellowship at least I know I didn't necessarily I didn't have necessarily an algorithm uh, around so Scott Bauman's here with us my co-host and uh, uh, Scott, um, you know, this is something that we see a fair amount. I feel like I see probably, I don't know, four or five of these patients a week. Uh, and from a therapy perspective, I think uh, we'll talk about this later, but I think it's something from a therapy perspective that um, we have a good, uh, have a pretty good idea of how to help take care of these patients as well as the, from the, from the surgical evaluation piece. Yeah, that was one of my first questions was really the prevalence of that is, is how often are you seeing these and are you seeing common reasons why people are not happy with these? Yeah, unfortunately, it's more common than I wish it was. There are people that come into my office every day. I see I see new patients two days a week in the office, and I probably see, I don't know, two to three of these patients per clinic day, I feel like. So probably four or five of them a week that come from elsewhere. And most of them are complaining of pain. That's the main complaint, of course. But then we have to really delve into uh, delve into their their pre and post operative course to figure out how things progressed before they had their operation. You know, a lot of times the first question is, did they even need their operation to begin with? And sometimes it's actually surprising to learn what some of these patients um, did or didn't go through pre surgery uh, in order to get to the even get to their operation from the very beginning. And then after surgery, uh, we want to know about that clinical course early on versus late. And like I said, the the main presenting complaint, as with almost anything in orthopedics, is is pain. But uh, in addition to that, some patients come in with with stiffness. Some patients come in feeling a sensation of instability, which may or may not actually be structural instability and they, they may just have vague soreness and lack of function that they uh, that they don't understand why they why they can't figure out and why when they go back to their surgeon they they, they aren't given a lot of answers so when you first see this patient and, and you said the most common complaint is pain and potentially some stiffness when you start your subjective exam and you're asking them questions are there specific questions that you need answered that really drives you to certain treatment and may be different than your typical patient that you see in the office yeah, definitely. And as I said, we start even back to the preoperative phase. And I ask a lot of these people, uh, how long did you have a bad knee before you had surgery? And I always want to hear from people from my own patients when we're talking about surgery. Oh, my knee's been hurting for years. It's been a really bad problem for a long period of time. But surprisingly, some of these people say, well, my knee was fine up until, uh, you know, a month before I had surgery. Really? Well, tell me a little bit more about that. Well, I, I felt fine and I slipped and fell and hurt my knee and I went and saw uh, the doctor and found out that I had an arthritic knee and within a month I had my knee replaced. So when we when we hear something like that in the preoperative phase that someone had a really short clinical course 
pre-operatively, then we have to wonder, you know, was there some sort of a functional or pain problem that happened pre-surgery? Did they have an undiagnosed fracture of some sort? Did they get really stiff from their initial injury? Did they get really swollen and lose function preoperatively that then set them down a course where even if they had a good knee replacement, that they were going to have potentially a bad outcome. So I want to know about their preclinical course um, as well as what kind of non-surgical treatments that they had leading up. Did they have injections? Did they have physical therapy? Did they try medicines? Had they seen other doctors, had other opinions? Did they have surgery? You know, did they have an arthroscopic surgery or an ACL reconstruction or some other kind of or a fracture surgery, something like that in the preoperative phase. So I really like to get those questions nailed down to know what that preoperative phase looked like. So those are most of the questions that are related to how the patient was treated before their surgery. Are there specific questions that you like to hit that really covers their postoperative period? And once we get through that preoperative phase, we want to know about the early and the late post-surgical phase. I ask patients a lot, did you have any trouble with uh, signs and symptoms of infection? Did you have wound drainage that it was tough to control? Did it have... Did, was it tough to get your incision to heal? Were you ever on antibiotics? Did you have any early complications like falls or some other, some kind of a problem that happened in physical therapy? And did you initially do well? In that first couple of months, did you feel like I really progressed well, got what I wanted out of it? And that's an important thing for me. If somebody says that I had problems from the very beginning and my knee was never a good knee from the from the time I had surgery until the present that may lead me down one specific pathway and a different evaluation method versus if the patient says you know I really did really well initially I got my, most of my range of motion back I got good pain relief I got back to activities therapy went well and I my doctor and I were both happy with my progress and then some time passed and then something different happened and I started to get worse that takes me down a different evaluation pathway and that then leads into that late that later uh, later phase does your knee hurt or is it have poor function or is it both if so is it more of a pain problem less of a function problem or more of a function problem less of a pain problem and then trying to get an idea like we do with all patients, what do you do for a living? What kind of activities and recreation things do you like to do? Can you do those things after your knee replacement? Does it make it painful or does it make it so you can't do any of those activities uh, to, pr to try to put it all into context? When we get down the road and we've done the evaluation, find what we think the problem is, some patients say, you know what, I just wanted to make sure that it wasn't anything terrible my function's okay and my pain's not that bad. I want to live with it. I don't want surgery. And maybe we move down a, a therapy pathway versus if somebody says, I have terrible pain, this knee has taken over my life. Everything that I do with all my time uh, all day long revolves around how my knee feels for that day. That takes us down a different pathway as well. So it seems like the subjective exam is quite different than your typical patient that's coming in. Can you touch a little bit on the uh, the objective exam and if that's any different than your typical patient? The physical exam for me starts similarly to how it does to every other patient that I see. I always go to the non-surgical or non-involved knee first. That's a discussion for another day when we get into knee exam, but I always want to know what the good knee looks like. I realize that a knee, a replaced knee is not, even a successful one is not going to examine exactly the same as a as a non-involved knee is, but I want to get an idea how much extension does the patient have, including hyperextension? How much flexion does the patient have? What's their normal... Uh, varus valgus and anterior to posterior stability on their on their intact you know normal native knee and then how do we relate that back to the opposite knee 
I always want to start with range of motion on the involved knee as well. Uh, a lot of these patients that come with failed total knees aren't actually having any kind of a structural problem. They're just stiff or weak or deconditioned or just uh, functionally deficient still in some way. And that that's never gotten better. Some of them even years down the road. And that we have been those patients in, in particular, we have been able to get some good results by just getting them through a physical therapy program. So always want to start with range of motion. Uh, patients who have issues such as malrotation or uh, even instability or other kinds of problems can have stiffness associated with it as well as kind of a byproduct of what's going on with their knee structurally. Uh, and on the flip side, people who have instability often have hypermobile knees. If somebody comes in to see me with a knee replacement that's not doing well and has five degrees of hyperextension and 145 degrees of flexion, I'm starting to think pretty early about instability and whether that could be the culprit. After that, then we're moving on to uh, the stability examination. I always get the knee up to 90 degrees and check the anterior to posterior stability, try to get the patient uh, with my foot, their foot stabilized against my hip, kind of sitting on the bed, try to relax their hamstrings with my, with my hands to really make sure we're getting a good exam and then pull forward and check that anterior to posterior stability at 90 degrees. I think that's a, a very important one when assessing for flexion and stability. I then put the knee all the way out straight into extension, move it into varus valgus and should have very little, if any motion into varus valgus at that zero degree, uh, zero degree angle. And then we bend them up to about 30 degrees, push into varus valgus at that, uh, that time as well, and see whether or not we have, uh, any instability there. And on both sides, we want to see that the knee opens up a little bit, uh, with varus stress with, uh, a little, with a solid endpoint, and then into valgus stress that it's the same. I know a lot of people talk about, mid-flexion instability. I find that a harder one to be able to assess, like what degree are we at and can we really get an objective exam that is reproducible in that degree of flexion? For some reason, I don't know, I, don't, I have a lot of scientific answers for this, but I feel like I can do that at zero and 30. I don't think I'm as good at that at 45 and 60 degrees and on, on all the way up to 90. But I will also put the knee up to 90 degrees and internal and externally rotate the hip until we reach the limit where uh, where the where the knee um, where the knee ligaments engage to see if they have any varus valgus instability at 90 degrees I find that particularly to be a problem in people who have lateral side instability that when they cross their legs they really feel when that, that knee drop out and open up in varus at 90 degrees that that can be symptomatic whereas into into valgus uh, you know with the hip internally rotated uh, trying to open up that medial side at 90 degrees I don't find that to be as symptomatic um, post-surgery, but uh, the, the, that, that uh, stability examination is, is, of course, an important one as well. And then, of course, I'm also looking at, do they have an effusion? If so, does is uh, grading it mild, moderate, severe? Uh, do, do, does it look like they have good wound healing? Um, that uh, or does it look like the scar is widened, like it might have taken a little while to heal? And then I'm looking at the overall alignment of the leg, trying to assess whether the knee was put in in varus or valgus uh, outside that kind of neutral parameter that we're really shooting for. An another one that's a little bit more difficult is looking at the rotation of the extremity compared to the opposite side, specifically tibial rotation, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Uh, try to move the knee to 90 degrees, make sure the patella is uh, straight. I'm looking at the patella straight on end and then dorsiflex the ankle to see whether the foot is internally or externally rotated relative to the, to the axis of the tibia. That's kind of a hard one to be able to standardize, but I do look at that side to side to try to get an idea whether or not there's any um, rotational abnormality 
abnormality uh, with the knee on physical exam. So sticking with the topic of exam, you, you hit the subjective and objective pretty well, I think. How about imaging? Are there any certain types of imaging um, that you obtain and what are you looking for on those? Well, we get plain imaging 100% of the time on these, whether uh, usually we get them in our office, just standard AP lateral views. I always like a merchant's view uh, for an axial view of the patella. I like that better than a Houston view or a sunrise view that's at a at a, a deeper degree of flexion because I find that that tends to centralize the patella tracking even if the uh, centralize the patella tracking even if it's off at lower degrees of flexion that you might catch an emergence view if you bend it down further in a houston view or a sunrise view you may um, restrict the patella's ability to come out to the lateral side and it may look centered when it when it isn't at lower degrees of flexion i do sometimes get a lower a, a higher degree of flexion view to look for lateral facet impingement if somebody looks like they have lateral facet overhang from the patella component onto the femur sometimes i'll get that by a uh, an axial view of the patella in um in more extreme degree of flexion but plain x-rays are really the bread and butter of uh, evaluating these at least in the initial time period of course i'm looking on the ap view for the overall uh, mechanical axis of the extremity is it in a gentle degree of valgus um if you look at the axis of the femur and the tibial shaft and the femoral shaft, is it in that kind of five, six degrees of valgus that, that, that we want? Um, is the is the post on the tibial component going essentially in line with the long axis of the tibia? And then I'm also looking at the spaces for the polyethylene. Do the medial and lateral spaces match? So, Or, or are they having maybe asymmetric component wear? Uh, and then once I've looked at the alignment, I'm also looking at the interface between the implant and the bone. I try to zoom in a little bit to look at that component interface to see are there any radiolucent lines, any developing separation between the implant and the bone uh, to, to see that that cement interface may be breaking down and potentially having some loosening. On the lateral view, I'm looking at the height of the patella. Could they have a patella or quad tendon dysfunction that leads to patella alta or patella baja? Uh, I'm also looking at uh, in, in a lot of detail at the at the slope of the tibial component. I've had several patients come to the office with more extreme degrees of posterior tibial slope um, that uh, they've been told is normal uh, that, that can lead to instability issues. And then again, I'm looking at that component interface on the lateral view to see if there's any sign of component loosening. So you mentioned the plain films. Is that the only type of imaging you're getting at the initial visit or are there other types of imaging you get either at that visit or later on down the process? At the initial visit, we usually just start with plain x-rays. Obviously, that's in the office, and it's easy to do, and uh, those, are, those are the easy, easy ones that, were, that, that are easier to obtain and to evaluate. Um, but further imaging is sometimes necessary uh, after that first visit. After the first visit starts, I try to look for, is there instability? Uh, is there any kind of malalignment that I think can easily solve the case? And if not, then a lot of times, as long as there's not infection present, then we'll move on to physical therapy. Can we improve motion, improve strength, improve function, and try to get a good outcome from the knee that they have? Now, you mentioned infection. Is that something you routinely test for at the initial visit? I do. It's it's very uncommon that I don't get at least some lab work uh, to, to evaluate for infection at that initial time point. Infections are so uh, are so different in periprosthetic infections as opposed to infections in other places in that the findings can be relatively subtle. The patient may just hurt or the patient may just be stiff or the patient just may have uh, unexplained dysfunction that they don't know why that happened and it, and, and it all comes from infection. Of course, loosening can happen in fr from infection as well. So 
uh, almost 100% of the time I will do that unless the patient says, I had recent lab work at another doctor's office. Here's the exact same thing that you would that I would have ordered anyway. Then sometimes I'll take that and move on. I start with a C-reactive protein and a sedimentation rate. I think those are good screening blood tests to be able to get into put into context. Of course, they're nonspecific though. So if those are elevated, then I'll move on to aspirating the knee. Or if my suspicion is high for infection, then I'll go ahead and just aspirate them from the very beginning. And be, uh, in by that high suspicion, if somebody comes to me and says they've had chronic effusions, that they've had pain ever since the surgery, if they had any drainage or redness or were on antibiotics early on after surgery, or if they've had early loosening, things like that. And if I'm even more suspicious of infection, then I'll go ahead and get both the lab work and the aspiration to get a complete infection uh, evaluation at that first visit, but but I almost always uh, get get the uh, get the lab work. I think that's something that should be routine. Does time from surgery make you more suspicious or not when it comes to infection? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely an important factor to think about. If somebody says, I think I, I, that I was fine um, from the beginning of surgery for several months and then develop problems on down the road, of course, that doesn't eliminate infection, but it mes- may- makes me maybe think it's a little bit less likely, have a little bit lower index of suspicion versus if someone talks talks about wound healing problems, you know, early fevers after surgery, swelling they couldn't get to go down, drainage from the wound that they had problems with, or just pain and dysfunction from the very beginning. I think those factors would increase my index of suspicion to go to that aspiration uh, potentially right away. So beyond working them up for infection, you mentioned that uh, later on after the initial visit, you may order a different type of test. Can you uh, touch on that a little bit and what that may look like? Yeah, so if we don't think they have instability, loosening of the implant, malalignment, infection, some of the easy things that uh, are, are easier to make the diagnosis on on that first visit, will then usually go on with physical therapy, try to improve their range of motion, improve their strength, improve their function, maybe change things from a therapy perspective from what they've had previously and see if we can make them functionally better. And of course, if they progress and do better in that way, then we can just tell them, well, luckily everything structurally is okay and you're feeling better from therapy. If not, then we start to bring into into play, well, you know what, maybe the non-surgical treatment's not working. Maybe we need to go on with revision surgery, but we haven't found an indication for that yet. Uh, and a couple different imaging studies come into play at that time, one of them being CT. Uh, CT is the, the best way to evaluate for component rotation. And in my experience, I see a lot of patients, as we talked about earlier, a lot of patients who have knee replacements that aren't doing well that uh, and and nobody seems to know kind of what's going on with them. And in in my perspective, if I see normal X-rays and stiffness and kind of vague anterior knee pain, I'm thinking about rotational positioning problems very quickly. Now, I don't necessarily jump to the CT right away, but if they fail physical therapy, they're not progressing, they're not getting better, uh, especially if there's stiffness and kind of just vague pain and tightness, then I'll go on with a, a, a CT scan to evaluate for component malrotation, especially on the tibial side. I think that uh, a lot of surgeons don't necessarily understand the impact that tibial component rotation has on outcome and just how bad uh, some of these tibial components that we see um, in patients that have had pain that they can't otherwise explain is is kind of striking. I've had patients that have had, you know, upwards of 20, 30 plus degrees of internal rotation, especially on the tibial side, um, that, uh, that that that's kind of striking. Specifically on the t- sticking on the tibial side, I try to get at least a third of the way 
externally rotated from the medial edge of the tibial tubercle. I try to get to the junction of that medial and middle thirds of the tibial tubercle. But I think really anything that gets externally rotated or lateral to the medial edge of the tibial tubercle is probably okay. That gets that Q angle kind of in line with the with the axis of the flexion extension arc and is less likely to cause problems. So even if it's not exactly perfect, unless it's medial to the medial third of the tibial tubercle, I try not to worry too much about that with regard to component rotation. On the femoral side, I think anything more than about three or four degrees of internal rotation of the on the femoral side can potentially be symptomatic. But in my experience on CT, I see a lot more tibial component internal rotation maybe even than femoral. And the other imaging modality that I utilize a fair amount our bone scans looking for component loosening. As the surgeons out there know, sometimes when you're evaluating these patients, the evaluation for loosening can be sometimes difficult um, because we don't necessarily get good x-ray evidence of loosening either while it's loosening but not loose if it's on its way to being loose, but it's not there yet, you can't necessarily see that well on, on x-ray. And even some components that are frankly loose don't necessarily look like it on plain imaging. So if I start to become suspicious of component loosening and things aren't getting better and we don't really know why based on plain imaging, then sometimes I'll go to I'll go to the uh, bone scan to evaluate for loosening, especially or really only if they've been at least a year and a half to two years out from surgery. In the first couple of years after surgery, bone scans can be hot even if things are going perfectly fine and if the component is stable. So I think that's an important point to keep in mind if you're thinking about ordering a bone scan as well. Just because I'm curious, you've mentioned a lot of different ways that you work up a patient with a failed total knee, and that could be looking at the AP alignment, looking at CT scan for rotation or bone scan for loosening. What is your most common indication for revision surgery? Well, I think that's been an evolving thing over time. It used to be early on after surgery, the most common modes of failure were really centered around stability and alignment, that instability and malalignment were things that really bothered people early on and were the early modes of failure versus later people were, and infection as well. Versus later on, uh, polyethylene wear and osteolysis and component loose loosening was a, a bigger mode of failure late. I think with later generation polyethylenes, we've been able to get to a point where that polyethylene wear, osteolysis, and loosening doesn't happen that often. Even though that's a well-known, well-documented mode of failure, I just don't see that many patients coming in with component loosening anymore. And uh, I, I see a lot more patients that have normal x-rays and don't know what's going on that have component rotation that I think is pretty significant. And then if you look at studies in 2023 that look at what are the current modes of failure of knee replacements, I think infection has taken over as the early and late uh, most common complication. In my practice, because I don't practice at an academic center and I'm in a private practice, I don't see as many infections as maybe some people at academic centers do. I see a lot more component rotation problems, people that come in with where the knee looks looks good but feels bad and they just can't figure out why. Uh, and I see a fair amount then of instability and malalignment as well. So you've done the initial exam on this patient and you've really hit uh, all the tests you need to and you find out the, the reason why their knee replacement has failed. What does that initial treatment plan look like based on what type of problem is going on? 
Well, if somebody has component rotation or instability, sometimes those are a little bit softer calls as far as what we do uh, what, and what we what we talk about with the patient. If somebody has component malrotation and their function is reasonably decent uh, and they're just stiff, then I think it's at least possible to try physical therapy to improve their function and see if they can get better with the knee that they have. In fact, I don't even get CT scans unless we've kind of already failed that non-surgical that non-surgical management. I think that's a little more of an art than than science when it relates to this patient population. If you get a CT scan at that first visit when they have some things they could potentially get better with physical therapy, but you get an imaging finding that shows they have some component malrotation, as soon as the patient hears that, I think they kind of make that calculation in their mind that I have a an alignment problem with my knee replacement and I'm not getting better. So I really don't do that until it's time to start thinking about whether revision surgery is probably the right thing to do. I think that's an important point to keep in mind. With instability is also a continuum as well. There are people with rock solid knees and there are people with horribly loose knees that it's very easy to make the diagnosis. It's the gray areas in between that are a lot more difficult. If somebody has a little bit of lateral instability, you know what? Normal knees have a little bit more lateral laxity than the medial side. So is that really a problem? You know, that person you put up there that says they have relatively mild dysfunction, put them up into flexion and they have a little more than average anterior to posterior instability, but they have kind of vague pain. They're not in that much. They're not doing that poorly. Uh, they just want an knee that's functionally better. Is that degree of instability enough to push them into a revision total knee replacement? Or is that something that maybe they can live with? And if they make some functional gains with therapy, uh, they can move on with. So yeah, if, if I have somebody that I'm suspicious of component rotation or that has some relatively more mild instability findings, maybe I'll tend to slow play that a little bit more and see if we can get them better non-surgically. Loosening or larger degrees of instability and of course infection are a different story. If we see any of those at that initial evaluation, you know, we're moving quicker to the operating room. I tell a lot of these patients, this first visit generates a lot more questions than it does answers. And if I'm able to make the diagnosis and figure out what's going on your knee replacement at that initial visit, it's usually not good news. That usually means that your knee is so unstable that it pretty obviously is not going to get better, that you have an infection or that you have some kind of larger degree of malalignment that I think is pretty obvious um, those things lead to quicker diagnosis, but they also lead to a, a bigger chance of needing revision surgery. So with the patients that are in that gray area where they've, they're trying therapy, there may be an indication for surgery, but there's really that discussion on moving forward with surgery or not, what's that conversation with the patient look like and how do you counsel them on that, that decision for surgery? As it relates to instability, I think we have to look at are they having progression with physical therapy or not? Yes or no. Do they have severe dysfunction or mild dysfunction? And put that into context. And it's somewhere on that continuum between I have mild dysfunction and I do feel like I'm getting better versus I have more significant dysfunction and I don't feel like I'm getting better. Obviously, those drive us in two very different directions. Sometimes bracing can be helpful in those, in those unstable patients that have a decent amount of instability, but it's not just a slam dunk. Sometimes we can try bracing. Racing. I do feel better about offering somebody revision surgery for a more mild degree of instability. If they say my knee was not doing well, you put me in a brace for a period of time and that that did actually help. Um, but when I don't wear the brace, it doesn't feel as good. If some sort of external stabilization does make the knee 
uh, get better when they have it on, then of course that argues in our favor that if we can stabilize their knee internally, that they also should get some symptomatic benefit. As it relates to component rotation, same kind of thing. If they if they have mild dysfunction, improving range of motion, improving function, then maybe we won't. If they have more significant degrees of dysfunction and stiffness uh, and imaging evidence of rotation, then I may move a little faster into surgery. As it relates to how do we counsel those patients then, I tell those patients if you have whatever their extension stiffness is like, I tell them after surgery, we want to be able to get your knee all the way straight. Uh, and then usually uh, when we've looked at our data previously, kind of my general my general feeling is usually patients get about 15 to 20 degrees maybe of, of flexion improvement. So if somebody comes into the office and they have range of motion from 10 to 70, then I, then I would tell those patients, you know, when they ask, well, what kind of function can I hope for? Well, our function, I think would, I think I would consider it a success if we can get your knee all the way straight. And if we can bend your knee up to 90 degrees, I think I would consider that a good outcome because that's an important expectation to set for the patient that unfortunately from that level of stiffness, expecting us to get one of these knees that goes two degrees of hyperextension to 130 of flexion, it's not impossible. It's just not likely to happen. I think it's a more reasonable goal to think that that 15 degrees or so, maybe 20 degrees of improvement would be good. On the flip side, though, if somebody has a high degree of range of motion with instability, sometimes that can be because of the instability. And sometimes I'll tell those patients, our goal is still to get you all the way stiff, but you know what? You have 145 degrees of flexion and an unstable knee right now. When I stabilize your knee, you may actually lose a little bit of range of motion, but hopefully all of those things, whether instability, malrotation, whatever it is, our goal is all is that level of function, but hopefully with a lot less pain than we're having right now. And I, and then, you know, I kind of close with, unfortunately, revision surgery, there's no guarantees in revision surgery. I can't, if, if you're, if you want to know, you know, is it possible that you could be coming in here six months after revision surgery telling me, Dr. Benner, my knee still hurts? Unfortunately, I can't guarantee that. And that's an, unfortunately, it's a difficult conversation, but it is important to, it is an important discussion to, to set up, you know, kind of what are, what are our expectations and, uh, and to lay out the fact that, you know what, it's just not easy to get a good outcome every time. So knowing that, are there ever times where you just tell the patients you're unsure what is going on and, and how to treat them? Well, I wish I could say no to that question. I wish I could say that I figured out 100% of the time, but that definitely is not the case. Uh, there are definitely times when patients come in, they have good-looking x-rays. They have norm they have what I consider to be normal alignment. Um, they don't have any signs of loosening. Um, when we examine the knee, they have either very small or no degree of instability. Uh, and then we try the physical therapy process. We work them up for infection that's negative. They don't progress with therapy. We move on to CT scan and bone scan to check for loosening and malrotation and that doesn't work. We even sometimes evaluate for metal allergy, which is something that's a diagnosis of exclusion. Um, and I guess it's also important to mention potential extrinsic causes of knee problems. I've definitely had patients with sore hips that have had that have interpreted that as knee problem, that have had knee pain because of their arthritic hip. I've had patients with spine pathology that have come in with knee pain and it's been spine pathology and we've been able to treat those things and get relief of their knee pain, even though the structural problem wasn't necessarily located there. Metal allergy is something, that's a, probably a whole nother show to talk about how that goes uh, for that, but we also have to keep that in mind as well. But there are definitely sometimes back to your, to, to spin this back to your question that you asked. Um, there are definitely some times that I say, unfortunately, I just, I, you, 
your motion's good. Your strength is good. Your x-rays look fine. I don't find any instability. I don't find any signs of infection. Uh, we've gotten a CT scan to look for malrotation. We, I don't see any of that. I've gotten a bone scan to look for uh, loosening of the implant. And unfortunately, we just can't find what's going on with you. And I, I, I would say as a as a postscript to that as well, as a young surgeon, uh, I had to figure this out. And now that I've got a little more time, you know, 10, 12 years of doing this under my belt, I do feel like I have enough discretion to be able to say, no, I don't think a surgery is the right thing for you. And to have that difficult discussion with people that unfortunately, this may be as good as your knee can get. Uh, I think the flip side is to say, I don't know what's going on with you, uh, but let's go ahead and redo your knee and hopefully see if it'll work. I think we have some good sources in the literature to tell us that's about a 50-50 proposition, if anything, towards getting a good outcome. So I, I make the analogy to people, if I told you to go in my house and bring me out something, you probably wouldn't bring the right thing versus if we get, I told you to go in my house, the car keys are on the kitchen island. I think that we'd be pretty successful for that. And I relate that to revision surgery. If we have a specific mechanical problem that we think is, is causing the issue that we have good experience with and know we can fix, then by all means, I, uh, uh, patients, some of my happiest patients are revision surgeries that have gone well. On the flip side, if we don't find a specific mechanical cause and our only surgical indication is it just hurts and we don't know why, I just don't think we're necessarily helping people with that. Uh, another comment that patients sometimes make, well, can't you just redo it? It's not, it can't get any worse. And I have to look those people in the eye and say, you know what? Yes, it can get worse. And it very well may if we force our way into a revision surgery that we don't have an indication for. So those are difficult conversations. But uh, as I've gotten more time under my belt of taking care of patients like this, it's an important kind of discussion to be able to, to get through with a patient. Excellent. Well, you've given us some some great information on how to work these patients up that are not happy with their, their current total knee and, and how to hopefully give them a better outcome. If anybody has any questions on this, uh, if you take care of these on a regular basis or have any questions on how we take care of this, just let us know via our email or socials. For next week's episode, we're going to be covering the uh, something that I really enjoy treating and uh, from a physical therapy standpoint is patellar tendon ruptures. And we're going to cover the management on how those are uh, operated on as well as how we manage them from a rehabilitation standpoint. So join us next week for that episode. If you'd like to contact us, you can find us on social media, on Twitter and Instagram at the SKC podcast or on our Shelbourne Knee Center podcast Facebook page. Or you can email us at the SKC podcast at gmail.com. Make sure to join us next week and we'll talk with you then. Mm -hmm.